Well, let's pray. Oh, Father, you are so gracious to us uh, beyond anything we deserve. And so we, we are here with thankful hearts that we can just open your word and let alone read it, but, but to, to study it and to, to learn to know you better and your, and your word better. It's such a privilege for us. And so help us not, help us not, help us not take this moment for granted. Um, I do pray for our minds, that we would have sharp minds and attentive minds, as this can be a difficult topic to focus on. Um, but Lord, you are able to, to sharpen us and to help us engage, so we do ask that you would cause that for us this morning. And Lord, this is a, a difficult topic. Um, there's many different opinions on, uh, faithfuls, on faithful sides of the evangelical world, and so I pray that we would be open-minded, charitable to those we disagree with, and I do pray that um, the words I speak, that they would be true of your word, and if they are not, that they would be not remembered, um, and we pray this in your son's name, amen. So today begins a shift in our study on the spiritual gifts. Um, as we begin to analyze more closely the more debated topics in the doctrine. So some people think this is the fun part. Um, but over the next three weeks, we're going to be examining the gift of prophecy. Next week, we'll examine the gift of tongues. And then the last week, I'll make some cases for, for that those two gifts um, have, have ceased to function in our context. But let's first examine the gift of prophecy in Scripture. So Schreiner gives two chapters to the gift of prophecy in his book, and we're going to be going through both of these this morning. And the first chapter deals with the question, what is the gift of prophecy in the New Testament? Seems pretty straightforward, right? What is the gift of prophecy? But I'm going to open it up um, to a question of what is the gift of prophecy, which is kind of unfair since I'm going to spend the next hour arguing what I think it is. But I think it would be helpful if we can just get some ideas of what, what we think the gift is. This is good. That's how, that's how I would answer before this week. Okay. A unique ability to speak God's truth into a situation. To say what people... Okay. Yes, I think that is a, a fairly popular interpretation, especially in more charismatic circles. Good. Anything else? This is one of those questions where there, where there really are no wrong answers, except... There are a lot of wrong answers because there's so many different answers. <laughs> Anything else that y'all have heard? It could just not be your belief. Yeah. That's helpful. That's helpful because that, um, that illustrates kind of the wide variety, even within a, a, an evangelical movement like the Charismatics or in a Christian movement of what exactly this gift is. Anything else, or you just want me to tell y'all the good answer? <laughs> um, but the issue is there's actually very little consensus from scholars, even evangelical conservative scholars, on what exactly New Testament prophecy is. And Schreiner, in his book, only gives a brief, a brief survey of the diversity of, of views in modern New Testament scholarship. So I'm going to be relying heavily upon a different document this morning from one of his doctoral students, Richard Blaylock, 
um, who wrote, I think, a great, really great, comprehensive academic article on the gift of New Testament prophecy. Um, and Schreiner uses, he literally just footnotes and says, go read this article. Because um, he's getting a lot of the arguments from his, his student. But I think to begin what prophecy is, we need to analyze what it isn't. Um, and again, I was a little shocked to find out that there is really a lot, and I found several different beliefs from conservatives, Christians, on what New Testament prophecy actually is. And we're only going to look at three of these arguments to start. And again, I think these arguments are, are wrong. I don't think this actually is what New Testament prophecy is, but you are free to disagree. So the first... What is the gift of prophecy? One of the first, or the first we're going to analyze this morning, is the idea that prophecy is inspired exegesis. Prophecy is inspired exegesis. So this is also sometimes called charismatic exegesis. You might have heard it referred to as that. And this position was popularized by the scholar Earl Ellis, who's an interesting guy. He taught at Bethel Seminary for many years and also... Um, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. And the sum of, this position, of his position is that a key fundamental component of prophecy is having a God-given understanding of Scripture. So Ellis argues there is precedent for this position in the Old Testament. For, for instance, the prophet Daniel. He argues Daniel uses other Old Testament texts and Daniel has an inspired or a charismatic supernatural understanding of this Old Testament text that God has given him. And so Ellis cites other examples in the New Testament, but I just don't really find them convincing at all. Um, but if one holds to this position, then you believe the spiritual gift of prophecy is to have the ability to exegete or interpret Scripture under the direct inspiration of God. I think there's many issues with this belief, and the first being, and Blaylock points this out well in his paper, that one of the big issues with this position is that there is no New Testament evidence that explicitly shows interpretation of Scripture is tied to the gift of prophecy. So just because there are prophets who do interpret Scripture, which is true, that, that, that does happen in the New Testament, just because that is the case doesn't prove they are interpreting the Scripture using the gift of prophecy. It doesn't necessarily follow. Blaylock writes against this saying, he says, to prove that prophecy can be synonymous with biblical interpretation, Ellis would have to demonstrate that Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, and others exposited the scripture as an expression of their prophetic office. Needless to say, Ellis does not prove this point. So do you see his point? Just because those who, who were prophets interpreted scripture doesn't mean they do, did so through the gift of prophecy. So Ellis, I think, makes the mistake of conflating these two points. Any questions on that one? <coughs> okay, the second um, misunderstanding of what prophecy is, and this one's a little more popular, but this is the idea that prophecy is the same thing as preaching. Prophecy is preaching. So again, this is a much more common understanding of New Testament prophecy and has been fairly popular in the history of the church. Prophecy as preaching was the common understanding of what, of what prophecy is for, for the Puritans, for most of the Puritans, whom I love. I love the Puritans. I've benefited greatly from the Puritans. 
Um, the Puritan William Perkins has a, a seminal book on preaching called The Art of Prophesying, which again, it shows you his understanding that that prophecy is synonymous with preaching. And many scholars today hold this view. Probably most important of those is a man named David Hill, who wrote an influential book on this topic or on this position, which I can't remember the name of it. Should have wrote it down. But Hill argues that New Testament prophets always teach and give instruction, much in the same way we understand what preaching is. And so he writes, this is Hill, as pastoral preachers, the New Testament prophets teach and give instruction on what the Christian way requires of individual believers and of the community as a whole. So again, this might be a true understanding of New Testament prophecy. And again, I want to clarify, many wonderful, godly Christians throughout church history and today believe this to be true. But me, and probably more importantly for y'all, Tom Schreiner, um, remain unconvinced. Douglas Moo, who he's actually going to be speaking at the ARF conference next week, and you should go hear him. Um, I'll do a little advertisement here. He is really one of the leading world-class evangelical New Testament scholars that's still living. Um, so I think it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to, to go and hear him teach. So please do go take advantage. But Doug Moo has written an article, and he is critical of Hill's argument that prophecy is preaching because he does what Moo calls argument by association. So in other words, this is the same issue with the last understanding of prophecy. Hill assumes the mention of teaching or exhortation, so what we think of as preaching. He assumes the mention of those as being associated with prophets in the New Testament implies the presence of prophecy. You see the same mistake as, as the last one? It's the same mistake as, as prophecy as inspired exegesis. And Mu helpfully points out for us the same issue here. There are also other New Testament examples that Blaylock points out, such as Agabus's prophecy in Acts 11.28, where he predicts a famine, right? That's, that's his prophecy. He predicts a famine, which seems to me that that's not anywhere close to what we understand preaching to be, right? He's just predicting a future event. That's not what we think of as preaching. So I think the evidence in the New Testament suggests that prophecy is not the same thing as preaching. Another issue I was just thinking about this morning is, um, so in 1 Corinthians 11, we have, you know what, I'm not going to even say that, but we will move on to the next one. You can ask me after. I've learned not to say what's not in my notes. Saves me trouble. Um, so the last one is prophecy as interpretation of inspired thoughts. So New Testament prophecy is an interpretation of God-given inspired thoughts. This is another popular view in the Christian world. This is, I think, what um, many charismatics today would, would view prophecy to be. And the view of Wayne Grudem, who wrote probably the most influential systematic theology book in, in recent years. And we're going to be talking about Grudem's position a lot 
today. But this view teaches that New Testament prophecy is a human interpretation of divinely inspired thoughts. So in other words, how prophecy works in this view is that God gives those with the gift of prophecy divinely inspired thoughts that the human would then interpret primarily through speaking them. And so this definition of prophecy, I think, I think it, it's, it's closer to being right than the others, but it still has some issues. And one of the issues is this idea that prophets need to interpret the divine revelation given to them. Um, Grudem gets this primarily from 1 Corinthians 13.9, which you can turn there if you want, but it states, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And he argues that this verse implies that a prophet had to interpret the, refer- the revelations he received from God, because he, they received it in part. I personally think that's doing way too much with this uh, verse, and it would be hard to conclude the relationship of divine revelation in the human mind based on this one verse alone. But this idea from Grudem is very big, and we'll come back to it later, to his understanding that New Testament prophecy can be wrong, right? Because it's, in his view, and many others, not just him, but in this view, the human agent of the divine revelation is ultimately responsible to interpret the thought, the divine thoughts and communicate. Now, I think there's a clear text in the New Testament that clearly refutes this. And, and Blaylock and Schreiner both also point this out. So let's turn there in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Peter writes in the middle part of verse 20, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I think this text pretty explicitly states that no prophecy comes from human interpretation. And no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. So from this text alone, which is really what I think I need, I reject this view of prophecy as an interpretation of inspired thoughts. So, those are three views of what I think prophecy is not that are common today. But then it begs the question, what does Schreiner argue it is? You might want to get your pencils out. I have a shorter definition and a much longer definition. Um, but the shorter, shorter definition that Schreiner gives is in his book is that prophecy is spontaneous revelations that are communicated to God's people. Prophecy is spontaneous revelations that are communicated to God's people. I was not satisfied with that definition. I wanted it to be a little longer, so I got a much longer one that I'm going to tell you all. But don't worry, I'm going to go through each of these parts of this definition. And this comes from the, the, the Richard Blaylock article. And he argues prophecy is a miraculous act of intelligible communication rooted in spontaneous divine revelation and empowered by the Holy Spirit so that the prophetic words spoken or written could be attributed to God, which therefore must be received by those who hear or read them as absolutely binding and true. Y'all get that? Yes? Again, I'm going to go through each little part of that. 
Um, but Blaylock gets this definition from a very, I think, a very thorough and comprehensive study of every New Testament text that either explicitly or implicitly deals with the gift or, or just with prophecy in the New Testament. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to go through all of his findings because I find them fascinating. But if you're interested, I would highly suggest reading the article. I can send it to you. Just tell me and I will send it to you. It's a great article. Um, but I just want to quickly dive into the, this definition and explain them a little bit. So the first part of the definition, New Testament prophecy is a miraculous act of intelligible communication. Intelligible, not unintelligible. Intelligible communication. So the idea that prophecy is a miraculous act is not very disputed, but we can see clearly the gospel writers in the book of Acts that they viewed prophecy as something on, on par with uh, a demon exorcism or, or having God-given supernatural dreams. Prophecies often listed next to those miraculous things in uh, the Gospels and in Acts, which indicates, I think, prophecy is miraculous. And I think it's miraculous in the sense that God is giving his revelation through a human agent. That's, that's abnormal. It's, it's, it's miraculous. Throughout the New Testament, we also see Prophecy was intelligible communication, intelligible communication. This is probably most clearly seen in our last book in the New Testament, Revelation. Revelation is a prophecy, right, given to John, which is written for or by intelligible communication. It's written for us to, to understand cognitively. So the second aspect of this definition of prophecy is that prophecy is rooted in divine, spontaneous revelation. Divine, spontaneous revelation. Meaning that prophecy is always given to the prophet by God directly and not a human interpretation of divine thought. So this is contra Wayne Grudem. Um, spontaneous just means that the prophet didn't prepare to give the prophetic message like I prepared to give this. He just received it on God's timing and spoke it. We see this in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 29 and 30. Shriner writes of this passage that we see a prophet is speaking in the congregation, but suddenly a divine revelation is given to another prophet. The first prophet, Paul says, then sit, should sit down, and the prophet who just received the revelation should speak. So what does this show us about prophecy? First, that the prophecies are divine revelations, right, given to the prophets from God, and that they occur spontaneously or without a plan or preparation. There's other places we could go that proves these aspects of prophecy, but for time's sake, let's move on to the, the third aspect of the definition, and that is prophecy is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, this is another very clear truth that's really undisputed, so we're not going to spend a lot of time here. But just know that all across the New Testament, prophecy is always closely associated with the power and the role and the function of the Holy Spirit, which we've already seen in this study as the Spirit was the one who gives his gifts, which one of those gifts is or was prophecy. The fourth aspect of the definition is that 
the prophetic words spoken or written could be attributed to God. Or more specifically, prophecy can be attributed to all members of the Godhead. So in other words, prophecy is Trinitarian in nature. Blaylock argues we see this point most clearly in the book of Revelation, which it might be helpful to turn there, but I'll just say it. And in Revelation, prophecy is attributed as the word of God. You see that in verse or chapter 1, verse 2. It's attributed as the testimony of Jesus Christ, which we also see in, in verse 2 of chapter 1. And finally, in um, chapter 2, verse 11, the prophecy is attributed as what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. So you see, right, right there in Revelation, you see how this prophetic word given to John was from or attributed to all members of the Godhead. And what this means for us in our study of the gift of prophecy is that the New, Test- New Testament testimony of the gift of prophecy is that prophecies in the New Testament were always divine revelation from the mouth of God himself that could be attributed to any member of the Trinity. And I think this, this is the key point. It has massive implications for our understanding of the gift. And this is where much, I think many of the disagreements on this gift, this is the, the foundation point. Even amongst, I think, folks in the, in the same congregation. Right? Even amongst leaders, leading conservative, reformed scholars. Which leads to the fifth and last part of the def- definition, which is by far the most disputed. And that is, because prophetic words are divine revelation that can be attributed to God himself, then they must be received by those who hear or read them as absolutely binding and true. That is big. That is a big key statement. That prophecies must be received by those who hear or read them as absolutely binding or true. And this is, again, this is the real difference in this debate. Because it's not just... It's not just charismatics who disagree with this, but folks like Wayne Grudem, John Piper, D.A. Carson, who are all wonderful, godly, faithful brothers, smart men, they would reject this last truth. Um, Which I think it produces a little humility in me, (laughs) because who am I to disagree with Grudem, Piper, and Carson? Um, But I think it, it should... It should also uh, kind of lessen the temperature in the room, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, about what exactly we're debating about. Um, but I do think those men are, are wrong. And more importantly, again, I think Schreiner argues well why they are wrong. But any questions about that first question, what is New Testament prophecy? Um, well, you just stole pretty much a big part of my last night. <laughs> no, uh, I, think you could, I think you could very well argue, and it seems like a semantic debate, but I do think it's more, and I'm going to try to make that argument in a little bit. Um, but I do think we're much closer, at least me and, and folks in the Grudem camp, than it appears because of that category of enlightenment, um, which we'll see at the end of our lesson here. Anything else? I think that's right, too. And we see that that's clear in 
I'm going to mention this in a moment, but in the um, Old Testament prophets, in Deuteronomy 18, it's clear that uh, all prophets had to be tested based on what they're saying is to be true or, or not to see if they're actually true or false prophet. I do think the same thing applies in the New Testament. That's what I'm about to get into. Well, I'm, I'm making the case, I'm starting to make a case of why I don't think that exists um, after the closing of Scripture based on this first definition of prophecy. Yeah, in the New Testament era. I mean, just even, we don't know all the ones in 1 Corinthians 14 that they were supposed to evaluate. But we also have, there's a bunch of Jesus' teachings we don't. Scripture contains everything we do need to know, though. That's the important key. All right, so on to the second um, chapter and second question, which is really a, the, the big bugaboo in this debate, is, is New Testament prophecy, is New Testament prophecy mixed with error? Is New Testament prophecy mixed with error? And we're going to begin this question by hopefully... And I really do mean this. I hopefully want to faithfully give the argument that is popular today, which is, again, popularized by Wayne Grudem. Um, but before diving into that, I do just want to say there are probably some of you in here that either agree with Grudem, Piper, and Carson, or even if you don't agree, I can guarantee there's some of you in here that have been taught on this topic by pastors or teachers who, who hold to this view or who are influenced by Grudem. And I think that is totally okay. Um, I want to say that up front. I mean, I do think they are wrong. But I do think it's important for us to recognize and do some theological triage, which we learned about in our last study. What we are wading into here on the exact nature of New Testament prophecy is what I would consider, and many would consider, a third-tier issue meaning members in the same congregation can disagree about this belief and still stand in fellowship with each other with a good conscience. And I also want to say, where you land on this position of what New, New Testament prophecy is, likely is going to affect where you land on the continuationist-cessationist debate. This topic is foundational for that separate but related um, argument. And I want... And what I hope you see already is that this is a very different type of discussion than what we were talking about a few weeks ago regarding charismatics. Here's what I mean. In many cases in the charismatic world, they will teach something along the line that the gift of tongues and prophecies are necessary for sanctification. Or maybe not. they won't use that strong of a language, but, but it's a major part of the Christian life. Um, that is a totally different thing entirely to what is being argued by Piper, Grudem and, and folks like Sam Storms, D.A. Carson, and other faithful continuationist scholars. So I'm trying to make the case that what we're about to study is altogether different than that charismatic teaching, and I would argue far less dangerous than the charismatic teachings on this. So I think we need to make the distinction between charismatics, those who would say these gifts are, are necessary for sanctification or, or living the higher Christian life, and continuationists who say this gift is still operative in the church today, but it isn't necessary for sanctification. So I think it's important to remember in this conversation that all charismatics are continuationists 
but not all continuationists are charismatics. Does that make sense? Good. All right, so let's move on to their argument. Well, let's first start off where a majority of everybody agrees, and this is going to be on the, the Old Testament. Mo most folks in this debate, at least most of the popular arguments, agrees that prophecy in the Old Testament is the infallible word of God. So there are a few scholars, kind of obscure scholars, who would argue that Old Testament prophecy isn't always the word of God, and it's not always authoritative in the Old Testament. But again, I don't, I don't think their, their view has much of any exegetical warrant. But we see in the Old Testament, I think pretty clearly, infallible, perfect prophecies. And this is characterized best by the common phrase we see in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord, or thus says the Lord. And right, this is spoken right before a, a prophet speaks, typically. And Schreiner makes the point that in Deuteronomy 18, we see that whether one was to be known as a true prophet was whether his words came to pass, whether that testing, um, whether the, the testing of his words came to pass. And if what they prophesied didn't come to pass, they would be considered a false prophet as not speaking for God. Now, the common view of the day, and again, this is taught in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, is that while Old Testament prophecy is infallible, it's without error, that, and it is the, the very word of God, he argues that New Testament prophecy is different. There's a fundamental difference between New Testament and Old Testament prophecy. And he would argue New Testament prophecy is fallible, able to be wrong, and therefore it must be assessed on such a basis. And so I'm going to go through um, a few of their, of those guys' I think most popular and some of their best arguments. I do think they have some good arguments that are hard to answer. Um, and I'm going to just go through these arguments on this position and respond to each of them. And please feel free to stop me if you have any questions along the way. Um, so the first argument that New Testament prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecy and can, in fact, be an error is that prophecies in the New Testament are judged or, or they're evaluated using the biblical language. Again, we see this clearly in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, which states, two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate. So proponents of this view argue that the reasons prophecies are evaluated is to separate what is true from what is false in the prophecy. And then they, they would conclude then that New Testament prophecy then could be false. Like the, the, the components in the prophecy. The issue I have with this argument is that Paul could be referring to and this, many scholars believe this to be true, but Paul could be referring to making evaluations between prophecies, not the accuracy of each prophecy, of each component of the prophecy. So in other words, it could be, as many other places in the New Testament command the church to do, which is to evaluate prophets', prophets message, messages as a whole to see if they are false prophets, to see if of the whole of their message is false. So, and clear, and, and 1 John 4, 1 says there's going to be many false prophets 
among the New Testament church. So the evaluation Paul is talking about, I think, in 1 Corinthians 14 could be, and I think is, an evaluation on whether the prophecy is completely true or false. And just to tease this thought out a little bit more, think about this. If, if true prophets of God in the New Testament could prophesy with a mixture of error at all times, it could be a mixture of truth and error, how could anyone in the New Testament church distinguish who was a false prophet if they're all either more or less right or wrong some of the time? Schreiner makes this point well. He, he argues, those who claim that New Testament prophecy is fallible don't account well for the need to discriminate between true and false prophets, which is commanded in the New Testament. For making such judgments would be terribly hard if the words of true prophets contain both truth and error. So I think it's important to remember that the reason Grudem gets to this interpretation, and this is just my opinion, um, but the reason I think he gets to the, this interpretation of in 1 Corinthians 14 is because he's made a pretty arbitrary decision, I think, which we've already covered, but that is New Testament prophecy is actually thoughts, remember that? Thoughts given by God to the prophet who was then to analyze which, are, which of these thoughts are his own and which of these are from God, and then he's going to kind of communicate that to the best of his abilities or her abilities. And I think if that is your presupposition of what prophecy is, then you will read into this text here in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, that, it, that these teachings can contain error. Does that make sense? Um, a second argument of why New Testament prophecy, or why these scholars believe New Testament prophecy is fallible, and therefore non-authoritative, is that apostles in the New Testament, it's the apostles, not the prophets, that are the New Testament equivalent of Old Testament prophets. So this is an argument made popular by D.A. Carson. Uh, D.A. Carson makes this argument that in his reading of the New Testament, the apostles are afforded a lot more authority than the prophets. And thus, he implies the equivalent authority-wise of Old Testament prophets are the New Testament apostles and not necessarily the prophets, which he and Grudem then both conclude that the only authoritative office and gifting in the New Testament is apostles and not prophets, not prophecy. Now, I don't think that argument is right, um, but... Blaylock, in his article, points out wisely that even if we grant that this is true, even if we grant Carson's position as true, that Old Testament prophets are equivalent to New Testament apostles, that does not require the conclusion that New Testament prophets did not prophesy, prophesy with divine authority. So I think Blaylock sums this up well. He, he writes, The positive statement that apostolic ministry corresponded with Old Testament prophetic ministry need not imply the negative statement that New Testament prophetic ministry did not. So I think that's a, I think that's a really good argument against this, this position of, against Carson and Gruden. The third argument, and these are starting to get harder to beat, but these are some better arguments. 
Actually, not this one. But the third argument for why these scholars say New Testament prophecy is a mixture of truth and error, and this is, I think this is probably the most popular argument I have experienced, is that it seems that the prophecy of Agabus in Acts 21.11, which I want you to turn there. Let's turn there. It seems that Agabus is wrong in his prediction. I thought Agabus was a girl name for a long time, but it's a boy. So Acts 21, I'm going to read verse 11. And coming to us, he, that's Agabus, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So those uh, in, the, in the Grudem camp with this viewpoint argue that Agabus was wrong to predict that Paul would be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles because he was in fact bound by the Romans, not by the Jews. So the, the argument is that Agabus was wrong. It clearly proves New Testament prophecies can be wrong. Okay, I think this is a better argument, um, but I don't think it's totally convincing, and here are a couple reasons why. First is a theological problem. Notice in the text, I want you to look at it, Agabus is proclaiming the words of the Holy Spirit. And the author Luke does not ever give the impression or make the explicit comment that Agabus is wrong or a, or a false prophet. So those who would say this prophecy was wrong or contained error need to reconcile that belief with the fact that this prophecy was directly attributed to the Holy Spirit. So the obvious conclusion is it's not just Agabus that would be wrong. It would be the Holy Spirit as well. And that's a huge, I think that's a huge problem. And that's a difficulty with that position that they, that they need to explain. Granted, Grudem does explain it. I'm not going to give his argument, but you can go read it. It's, I don't think it's good. But Another issue with this argument is that, and this is pointed out in the Blaylock article, um, there isn't a guarantee that Paul was not indeed bound by the Jews and handed over to the Romans. Just because it's not recorded in Scripture doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, I'm less convinced by this argument personally, but you might like it. Um, it could be true. Um, finally, and this is the main critique scholars give of this position, is that those who believe this prophecy to be an error are holding the prophecy in an overly pedantic manner that they don't hold Old Testament prophecy to. So they're, they're, they're focusing in on the details of the prophecy in an unhelpful way. And so here's what I mean. It isn't fair to judge prophecies with an overly literalistic expectation of fulfillment. So just because every word of a prophecy isn't fulfilled in the same way as, as said doesn't make the prophecy false. This is really key in understanding Old Testament prophecy. If this were to be the case, then many Old Testament prophecies would not actually be true because they weren't fulfilled literally in the exact same way as was prophesied. And ironically, this is exactly what liberal scholars will say to discount Old Testament prophecy and the infallibility of Scripture. They find little pedantic, focused way too much on the detail holes in the prophecy that aren't literally fulfilled, and then they conclude they're wrong, which is ironic because that's what Grudem's doing, who's the furthest thing from a liberal scholar. He's very conservative. Um, so we need to remember that 
it, it could very well be possible that Agabus was using prophetic symbolism, which would put him in, the, in a good company in line with, with the Old Testament prophets. So bottom line, I don't think because this prophecy wasn't literally fulfilled, at least from what is revealed in Scripture, means that the prophecy was an error. I know someone might have some objections to that. All right, the last argument that I'm going to go to for, for the belief that New Testament prophecies are fallible comes from that same chapter in Acts 21.4. Um, so in this story, we encountered Paul engaging with disciples, and he, he's seeking their counsel. And Luke writes, let me see, Luke writes, through the Spirit, in verse 4, that's a key phrase, that through the Spirit, the disciples were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And I think presumably, presumably because he, he was going to face suffering. At that, that point's not explicit in the text, but I think the context, that fits the context of chapter 21. So here's the key. Paul doesn't follow this advice or prophecy. So the argument from these guys is Paul must not have thought it was the word of God. He must not thought it was binding on him. Or he would be disobedient to obeying God's command. I think this is the best argument um, for their position. And it is difficult to respond to. But thankfully for me, Schreiner does. Um, so one argument he presents is that the actual prophecy, um, the actual prophecy given by the disciples, which remember we don't actually have recorded what they told Paul, just the recounting of it. But the actual prophecy was that, that Paul would suffer if he went to Jerusalem. And they made a conclusion that therefore, an inference based on that prophecy that, that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem. So Schreiner argues the, the inference that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem was not actually the prophecy. Rather, the prophecy was that Paul would suffer, which is not stated in the text. This could also be indicated linguistically in the verse because the phrase, um, the phrase through the Spirit could also be translated as because of the Spirit. And so if, the, if that translation is right, the, the meaning of the verse would then mean because of what the Spirit prophesied, which according to Schreiner was that he, he would suffer, that prophecy then encouraged the disciples to tell Paul not to travel to Jerusalem. So it's a very technical argument. Um, but I think it's a possible interpretation of the text. But it is clear, I think, for all of us, the meaning of what the author, right, who's, who's Luke, what was writing is hard to pin down. Um, Schreiner quotes a scholar named C.K. Barrett who writes, Luke does not express himself clearly. His words taken strictly would mean either Paul was deliberately disobedient to the will of God or that the spirit was mistaken in the guidance given. It is unthinkable that Luke intended either of those meanings. Which I think, I think that's right. So thus, both Barrett and Schreiner offer an alternative solution. Another argument, I think I find this more convincing, um, could be this is not referring to prophecy at all. I don't think it is explicitly clear from the language that prophecy is what is being talked about here. Um, just that phrase, through the Spirit, it's only used four times in the book of Acts. Um, and it's unclear if prophecy 
I mean, I will, I will say this. Most scholars believe this is referring to prophecy. So that might be the safe bet. But it, I would say there is, it is unclear at best. Um, but one final word here that relates to all of these arguments. Um, I think the burden of proof to prove that New Testament prophecy is different than Old Testament prophecy is on those who think them to be different. Because we have nothing in Scripture that tells us they are different. There's no verse that says they're different. Then I think there needs to be pretty clear evidence from the New Testament witness that they are different. Right? And frankly, if this verse in Acts 21.4 is the best and perhaps only evidence of New Testament prophecy being a mixture of truth and error, then I don't think personally, this is just again my opinion, that is enough evidence to prove their point that New Testament prophecy can contain error. Okay, so that was a lot. Thank you for bearing with all those technical arguments. And I hope it's clear. It's not easy to conclude. It's really not easy to conclude what New Testament prophecy is, and more specifically, if New Testament prophecy is different than Old Testament prophecy. But if the arguments that New Testament prophecy is indeed infallible, it's indeed the Word of God just as Old Testament prophecy is, then we we really can have a shorter definition of prophecy, much shorter than that long one. So this might be the one you want to remember. Prophecy is authoritative disclosure of God's word. Prophecy is authoritative disclosure of God's word. And so if you were to take me and Schreiner's position as true, that New Testament prophecy is the inerrant word of God, spoken or written to his people, then you can see, right, the straight line to why we believe this gift has ceased. Because with the closing of the New Testament canon of Scripture, we no longer need the office or gift of prophecy or prophets to speak to the church. That office and gift has served its function, and it served its function well in church and the church's history. But this leaves one last final controversial uh, issue to tackle today. And that is, what do we do with all of these accounts from church history and from today that seem to indicate that God gives a word or a thought to a Christian to share with another. What do, what do we do? Um, Schreiner, I think, gives a very helpful category. Right, This is a man-made category that he, he, he is getting, um, which he calls impressions. Impressions. So he wants to make a, uh, uh, what's the word? Distinction. Thank you, Mark, you're the best. A distinction between um, prophecy, New Testament prophecy, and something else called impressions. Um, this is a category he gets, I think, from Jonathan Edwards. Um, so let me start with a story, or really two. There are famous accounts of two preachers, two very um, well-respected, um, godly men, Charles Spurgeon and John Piper, who share a similar experience. They both have while preaching, felt called to say something that was not in their notes that applied specifically to a person in their congregation. For Piper, it was that someone should start a Bible study on a specific floor of a specific building, and apparently there was a man who worked in that exact building on that floor who would then go on to start a Bible study. Spurgeon detailed a specific sin, and in great detail, um, 
that a man was guilty of in his audience, and it turned out to be true. So what, what happened here? I can give you Ezra's answer, my son. I thought it was pretty, it was actually pretty good. He said, you know, those guys had big churches. They had big mega churches, so they, they were bound to be right if there's 2,000 people in there. <laughs> it's true. It's probably harder if you have 80 people. <laughs> um, but I don't think we should just say this was merely a coincidence. Of course, we don't believe in coincidences or that these men are lying, that they're, they're, they're creating fanciful stories. I don't think that's helpful. These these. I mean, Spurgeon and Piper have been tested, their character have been tested over time. But both Spurgeon and Piper, I think, would characterize this experience as prophecy. So then I think it's helpful to enter in Shriner's category of impressions. God could have impressed on their spirit to say something in that moment, but it's important to recognize and teach that what occurred wasn't the same thing as prophecy. And I hope you see why we spent so much try time trying to define exactly what prophecy is in the New Testament, because words matter, especially theological words matter. And so this may seem just like a semantic argument. If what continuationists call prophecy, cessationists call impressions, but they both think this thing exists, but we need, and this is what I want to urge us with the end, we need to be faithful to Scripture. And I'm not implying that either Spurgeon or Piper aren't. But I do think Schreiner gives a better and, and a more helpful, a more faithful to Scripture category to explain the apparent phenomena of, of, that occurs in the modern day when God may give thoughts or, or dreams or just what Schreiner characterizes as impressions to his people. Schreiner also makes the point that with the drastic rise in charismatics and, and charismatic theology, we need to even be more clear to distinguish New Testament prophecy from other God-given impressions. Because there are some charismatics who appeal to prophecy in a way that severely undermines the authority of Scripture. Again, I want to clarify, I'm not saying Grudem or other continuationists are doing this. But the reality is many charismatics put prophecy they receive in the same category as the authority of Scripture, which actually if you're following my argument, makes sense the way the New Testament presents prophecy. And friends, I think that is very dangerous, toxically dangerous. So Schreiner's point is that we need to be clear what they are talking about, these experiences that could be genuine. I'm not denying the genuine nature of them, but they aren't actually prophecy. That's the distinction. The final thing I want to say on this category of impressions is that while Schreiner does think God can use extraordinary means to communicate with his people, and God can do what he wants in his power and in his sovereignty, even though we recognize that as true, we must understand and believe that our ultimate authority can't be on the impressions we experience, but it must be on the word of God. Even if one receives an impression from God, I would argue they would be unwise to orient their life based on that revelation because everything we need to know for life and godliness is contained where? In the scriptures. Therefore, there is nothing that one can receive from an impression that they need for their salvation or sanctification. There's nothing that one can receive from a divine impression that they need for their salvation or sanctification. 
Jonathan Edwards writes on these God-given impressions and the danger of making them an authority in your life. He says, this is a good one for Halloween. I know that those who depend on impressions that leave the sure word of prophecy, which he means the scriptures, that God has given us to be a light shining in a dark place, to follow such impressions and impulses. They leave the guidance of the pole star to follow a jack-o'-lantern. And no wonder, therefore, sometimes they are led a dreadful dance into woeful extravagancies. Edward's point is that, yes, God can give impressions, but we would be foolish to trust these impressions over the very true word of God. And if one does trust in these impressions over the word, they have crossed the dangerous line of functionally not believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, another clarification. I'm not saying it is wrong if someone says God has impressed something on them and they go and do that thing. I'm saying it is wrong if these impressions, um, which again, I want to clarify, many people at Charismatics, what I'm calling impressions, they would call prophecy. But I think it's wrong, whatever you call them, to receive them with the same authority as Scripture, as Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. So do you see the distinction trying to make? Yes, you look skeptical. You have been for five minutes. Yeah, but I'm talking about, like, what if someone's, okay, this will be easier with dreams. Dreams. I once had a dream in the, in the summer of 2015 that I was preaching at First Baptist Church of Elgin, Texas. It was very vivid. I had never thought about going into ministry. I felt that was a God-given dream that was may, maybe a a vision of the future or something. I don't know. I could have just drank too much Mountain Dew that day. I don't know. But, <laughs> the, the, right, it's more of a personal, like the scripture doesn't say, that it's not a right or wrong. It's just a, a matter of wisdom, traditional choice of what vocation I'm going to pursue. Turns out I did become a pastor. Sorry, yes. Word of knowledge. Yeah, that's a, I have not even meant, that's a good, Another possible interpretation. Remember, Schreiner would categorize the spiritual gift of the word of knowledge as similar to the gift of teaching, or the same thing as the gift of teaching, which is just having knowledge of the scriptures. Um, but if you do have the interpretation that the word of knowledge is something like that, then that would clearly fit under that category of not prophecy. So that's helpful. And it, that is another faithful interpretation. But we're running out of time here. Um, so... At the end of the day, I submit to you that we should view New Testament prophecy as the very word of God and infallible, and thus it's no longer active in the church, and the impressions God can give to his people should not be put into the same category of authority as prophecy or scripture. That's my last statement. So next week, <laughs> next week uh, we'll tackle the gift of tongues, which is not controversial at all. Just kidding. <laughs> And hopefully we can gain a better understanding of that gift, of what the New Testament teaches of that gift. So you guys are great, and you are dismissed. <laughs>